0: My son is in town for the weekend with his four children under nine, and they came to the first service, and my eight-year-old grandson ran up to me after the service was over, and he was just, all so full life, because the kids are in the room to this weekend, and he he calls me Opa. He goes, Opa, you talked so long. (laughs) And I said, no, I didn't. He goes, yes, you did. There's a clock on the wall, and you went over. So I'm forewarned. We're going to bring this one in on time, OK, folks? Just wanted you to know. Uh, Today is the fifth week in our family tree series. And through this series, we've been looking at important moments in the lives of a number of Bible characters, both from the Old Testament and we will go into the New Testament in a couple of weeks. But we've talked already about people like uh, Abraham and Hagar and Isaac, and this week we're focusing on the lives of two women. Their names are Rachel and Leah, and they were married to Jacob, the man that Maren talked about last week. And if you heard Maren's message last week, and I hope you did, by the way, just an the is it's really good, it's worth a listen. But if you heard Maren last week, you'll know that she gave us a great deal of information about Jacob. And while Maren certainly covered much of what happened in his life, she was very clear that there was a lot of stuff that she just didn't have time to talk about. And one of the things she didn't have time to talk about, and it's a pretty important aspect of Jacob's life, is what we're going to be talking about today. And it's this, it's the fact that he was married to two young women, Rachel, And Leah. And while we're really not focusing on Jacob this weekend, we need to revisit just a bit of what Maren talked about last week in Jacob's life so we can better understand this business of him having two wives. Maren told us that Jacob was a twin, he's a fraternal twin who had a difficult relationship with his twin brother Esau. And she told us that that difficulty even started in the womb. They wrestled with one another in the womb. And that when they were born, they were both very different boys. Uh, Esau was hairy and outdoorsy, and his dad loved him because he was a hunter, and that Jacob was a smooth-skinned boy, and he stayed at home with Mom. And we also learned last week that jacob not once but twice deceived his twin brother esau the first time he he tricked him into trading his and esau was the firstborn so he was supposed to get a much larger twice the size inheritance than the younger son but jacob tricked esau into giving him his larger portion of the inheritance for a bowl of bean soup and if that wasn't enough, Jacob later, with the help of his mother, Rebecca, they deceived the, Jacob's father, Isaac, who was now blind. And Isaac was supposed to give the oldest son the family blessing, which is a big deal in their world. But Jacob tricked his dad into giving that blessing to him instead of his brother Esau. And we learned last week that Esau was really angry about this, so angry to having been deceived by his brother two times that he let it be known that he was looking for some way to kill his brother at the appropriate time. Now, what happened when Rebekah, the mother of these twins, heard that one of her sons wanted to kill the other? She says to Jacob, what you need to do is to run off to my brother's house, my brother Laban, now this is a 300 mile trip by the way, she says, you need to go to to live with him for a while and let your brother cool down. And then she says, and while you're there, why don't you look for a wife? And what Maren didn't have time to tell us was that when Jacob ran off to escape from his brother Esau, he left completely alone. And he took absolutely nothing with him. And so this 300-mile journey must have been really difficult. In fact, we read that when he finally arrived in the area where he thought his uncle Laban lived, he was really downhearted because he didn't have anything or anybody with him. But he stops at a well to get a drink of water in the space where he thinks his uncle Laban lives, and he starts asking some local shepherds if they happen to know a man named Laban. Well, surprisingly, their answer was something like "Well, like this. They point off into the distance to a, and they go, why don't you ask her? She's his daughter, because there's this young girl coming, leading a flock of sheep to the well. So that's where we start today. So let's all turn to Genesis chapter 29, verse 9, and we'll see what happens here. I want to welcome everybody that's online. We know you're there, and we're glad you're with us. It's on page 25 in the House Bible. And as you're looking, I need to, to tell you something. This story is a pg six sort of 18 sort of story I know the kids are with us we're so glad you're with us kids and old Tim is going to be really careful today and there will be there will be moments when I suddenly shift into King James English <laughs> because the words don't mean the same in King James anymore But I'm I'm aware I had three in the room first hour who I didn't want any questions from. So, we'll just leave it at that, okay? So, we're in Genesis chapter 29, verse 9, and we read this. Jacob was still talking with them, that's the shepherds, when Rachel arrived with her father's flock, for she was a shepherd. And because Rachel was his cousin, the daughter of Laban, His mother's brother. And because the sheep and goats belonged to his uncle Laban, Jacob went over to the well and moved the stone from its mouth and watered his uncle's flock. Now, just one important detail here. This stone that he moved was huge. All the records say that it was made in such a way that it took four men to move it as a protection of the well. And so for Jacob to go over and to move it by himself means that he was not just a mama's weakling mama's boy. He must have been fairly strong for him, and he's also apparently worked up because he's met a family member, but he moves this stone by himself. Then it says, Then Jacob kissed Rachel, and he wept aloud. By the way, a grown man kissing a young girl and weeping in public were things that men never did. So now he's done something that nobody would have expected him to be able to do, and he does something that nobody ever does. And so we read on, it says, he explained to Rachel that he was her cousin on her father's side, the son of her aunt Rebecca. So Rachel quickly ran and told her father Laban. I'm sure she was a bit confused by his behavior. And as soon as Laban heard about his nephew Jacob, that he'd arrived, he ran out to meet him. He embraced and kissed him and brought him home. And when Jacob told him his story, Laban exclaimed, exclaimed, you really are my own flesh and blood. And now things start to get interesting here. Look at the last half of verse 14. After Jacob had stayed with Laban for about a month, Laban said to him, "'You shouldn't work for me without pay "'just because we are relatives. "'Tell me how much your wages should be.'" Well, we are about to learn that Jacob was really smitten by this girl at the well. Verse 16 says this. Now, this is an aside by the writer. Now, Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger was one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face." Okay, we just need to stop there for a moment. Um, that's quite a comparison, wouldn't you say? No sparkle in her eyes, beautiful figure, all right? Well, first off, saying that there wasn't a sparkle in Leah's eyes is taking quite a bit of liberty with the Hebrew here. Um, that's a very nice way to talk about it. The word is rock in Hebrew, and it means this. It can mean to be weak. It can mean to be soft. It can mean to be tender-hearted or delicate. Now, some scholars say that it was just a nice way to say that she was ugly, okay? That she was ugly and her sister was beautiful. Others, though, say that it meant she had weak eyes, as in she was nearsighted, okay? Others believe that it means that she was naive, that she just wasn't aware of what was really going on in the world Others say it was a compliment, that the writer was actually saying this was a compliment. It was saying that Rachel was a beauty queen, but there wasn't anything below the surface. While Leah, on the other hand, down deep inside of her, she had a tender heart. And you could see it in her eyes. Well, I don't know what to tell you about this. Um, Scholars argue What I do know is that neither Leah nor Rachel had anything to say about what happens next. Look at verse 18. Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you for seven years if you give me, Rachel, your younger daughter as my wife. Now, why seven years? We don't know. When you find the number seven in the Bible, and it's everywhere, guys, sevens are everywhere. And multiples of sevens are everywhere. Anytime you find those things going on in the Bible, it generally means that God is involved in the story somehow. But we don't have any information about why he said, I'll work for seven years, other than what we do know is that it was a really long time to work for a wife. And of course, when Laban heard that, he goes, agreed, Laban replied, I'd rather give you, give her to you than anyone else. Stay and work with me. Now, by the way, this Hebrew right here where he's responding, it tells us that Laban was sort of matter of fact about this. It was sort of like, oh, well, I guess it's better to give her to you than anyone else. It's that kind of a response. And I think when he responded, he was really careful to say, I'd rather give her to you than to say, I'd rather give Rachel to you because we're going to find out he's got something up his sleeve. Verse 20 says, so Jacob worked for seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed but a few days, such as love, by the way, And then we read this, Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can know her. How romantic. I'm just saying. Can I tell you a bit about weddings back then? And marriages. Um, Weddings were not sacred ceremonies at all then. Romance. Love, eternal commitments before God and man had no place in a wedding or a marriage for that matter. Marriages were deals between families. The the father of the husband and the father of the bride worked out a deal to bring the families together. Generally, the husband and the, or the bride and the husband to be, the groom, didn't even know each other really. But here's the deal, since Jacob had come alone and he didn't have a father with him to make a deal and he didn't bring anything of value with him to pay for a bride price, Laban is in the driver's seat on this one. But even though there wasn't anything to make a deal over, They still needed a good party, so look at what happens in verse 22. So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. Now we have no idea how old Rachel was when this happened. There is a rabbinical midrash that's fairly uh, respected in the Jewish world that says she was 22, which means she was 15 when she first met Jacob. But I'm just going to tell you, being 22 would have been a really late age for a girl in this culture to be getting married. And we're going to find out pretty soon that Leah, her older sister, was also unmarried, and this would have been even more unusual. In fact, the same Jewish teaching that says that Rachel was 22 when they got married also says that Leah was actually Rachel's twin, and they were born at the same time, and Leah was only a few seconds older than Rachel, just like Esau was only a few seconds older than Jacob but I'm just gonna have to tell you there's no way that we know that that's true we don't know that's just what a lot of Jewish scholars think but what we do know is this that it would have been pretty much a given that if you had a 21 22 year old unmarried girl in your household that would have been a real problem for the family back then and if you had an older daughter who was unmarried at that age that that would be even more of a it's almost a tragedy in the family that you couldn't find anybody out there to make a deal for this girl just think about that this would have been terrible back then that's probably why we read this in verse 23 but that night when it was dark Laban took Leah to Jacob and he knew her Laban had given Leah a servant, Zilpah, to be her maid. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? And Laban replied, it's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn. Not just an aside. There is absolutely no historical anything that tells us that there was ever a thing in anybody's culture that said you weren't supposed to marry the younger daughter before the older daughter. But it was clearly a part of his plan to give her to Jacob. Now, there's a great deal of speculation as to how Laban pulled this off which I won't go into. But pull it off he did. And notice that neither of the girls, nor their mother, nor their handmaidens, or anybody else had anything to say about any of this. This was Laban's plan, and everybody else just had to get in line. And something else that's important to notice is that Jacob's response to being tricked by Laban, he goes, what have you done to me? What have you done to me? That's almost exactly word for word what Esau and Jacob's father Isaac said when he had deceived them back at home. But look at Laban's calm response to Jacob's rage. It's, it's The word actually means that your nose turns red. He's that worked up." He goes, "Oh wait until the bridal week is over." Then we'll give you Rachel too, provided you promise to work for me for another seven years. How kind of him. It says, so Jacob agreed to work seven more years. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. Laban gave Rachel a servant, Bilhah to be her maid. So Jacob knew Rachel too, and he loved her much more than Leah then he stayed and worked for Laban the additional seven years. Now, that just sounds like a great start to a marriage, doesn't it? Two girls, and everybody's worked up. Now, what we get in the next passage is an outline of what happened during those seven years. Those seven years that more that Jacob had to work for Laban. And to be honest, it all comes down to making babies, having babies. Women in this world at this time had one primary purpose in life and that was to make as many babies as they could possibly make. But I need to tell you something about how the ancient world viewed baby making. And I'm going to be really careful here, okay? Really careful. First... They fully believed that women had absolutely nothing to do with making babies. They just believed that. They believed that men gave little, tiny people to women. And that women did have a nest, like you know, womb, the same word in the ancient languages. They had, a, they had a, a nest for these little, tiny people that men had given to them to grow in, but that's all they contributed. Plus, they also believed that the woman's nest or womb had a door on it. And that door had a lock in it, and the only person with the key that unlocked a door to any woman's womb was God himself. So what this meant was that the understanding of the people at the time was that women were generally infertile all the time unless God came and unlocked that door and let a little person in. Okay? Now, I tell you this because that will make sense of what I'm about to read in the Bible, okay? Now, just follow me, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It says, When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled... Her to have children but rachel could not conceive so leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son she named him reuben for she said the lord has noticed my misery and now my husband will love me reuben means the lord has seen my misery soon she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son she named him simeon for she said the lord has heard that i am unloved and has given me another son simeon means something like the one who hears the lord had heard that she was unloved and he'd given her a son then she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son he was named levi for she said surely this time my husband will feel affection for me for i have given him three sons the name levi sounds like a Hebrew phrase that means this, my husband will become attached to me. And once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for she said, now I will praise the Lord. Judah, by the way, is a, it's related to a Hebrew term that simply means I will praise the Lord. Then she stopped having children and when Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children for Jacob, she became jealous of her sister. And she pleaded with Jacob, give me children or I'll die. See, she wants him to give her a child. Give me, give me that little guy. And then Jacob became furious with Rachel. Am I God? He asked, he is the one who has kept you from having children. Now a couple of the things. Uh, women did not name children in this culture. Fathers did. Yet, all of the children that we read about in this chapter are going to be named by their mothers. Clearly, Jacob was not paying much attention. He didn't even get involved in their naming. Plus, every single child in this chapter is named for something that's related to the circumstances of the, at the time of their birth. It's, it's almost as if these women were trying to make sure that their children were gonna be symbols of the family issues forever. I mean, think about it, Nephtali, his name is, I have had a great struggle. And Gad means good fortune has come. They're happy when that one was born. Or Zebulun, his name means this time my husband will honor me. And the last one is Joseph. Its name means, God has taken away my humiliation or my shame. By the time we get to the end of verse 24 of chapter 30, we find that Jacob has 12 sons and a daughter by four different women, eight by the two rival sisters, and four by the two handmaidens, think slaves. And the slaves had nothing to say about the fact that they had to give Jacob children sometime go back and read the entire story of these four women having children and you are going to see jealousy and you're going to see scheming and rivalry and condescension and all sorts of messy drama in fact the entire story is a mess or rather the entire story tells us that this family was a mess Now, I know that we're calling this series our family tree series, but at first glance, as I've been looking at this carefully, I'm not sure I really want some of these people in my family tree. You know, I want to just list out some of the things we've been told about this family in the passage. First off, we've got a father who seems to be missing. He's just not present. Then we have an unloved wife. And can I just say, we don't know what the thing about the sparkle in her eyes means, but if it turns out that Leah was unloved because she wasn't as pretty as her sister, and yet Jacob was still willing to have seven children with her, that's terrible. That's terrible. Now what we have is we have a woman bearing great shame. You know, Rachel might have been beautiful, but not having had any children in their culture meant that something was up. Something shameful was in the background of her life or her family's life, and that was keeping God from unlocking the door. And all that while that her sister's having children and she's not having children, she's living in shame. Because why? Because she knows that God is keeping her from this. And she also probably knew what other people were saying about her as to why God was not letting beautiful Rachel's door get unlocked. In fact, she carried this shame for a long time until the day God finally answered her prayers. She finally does have a child, and his name is the name he's given is Joseph, and I said it earlier, but you know what his name meant. God has taken away my shame. We also have four young women being used as property. Can I just ask, where is the dignity? Then Rachel and Leah being given by their father to their first cousin, a man they'd hardly knew, and then them making their two handmaidens being forced to bear children, knowing that those children would not belong to them. I'm just saying. And finally we have children being brought into this highly volatile and broken situation and this whole thing sounds like a recipe for disaster to me so the question is what is the point of God making certain that we know all about these spiritual ancestors why is it here Again, what's the point? Well, first off, I'll tell you what the point isn't, okay? The point isn't to tell us that God is okay with polygamy. It's always important to remember that just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean that God approves of it. Sometimes we get things that are meant to show us how much trouble we can get into if you go down a certain path, and the path in this story, which is having multiple wives, leads to nothing but trouble in their lives. This is not, it's okay because they did it back in the Bible days. But with that said, I can't help but think that we have this story because it will always be a pretty good description of our world. I mean, what family, if you look broadly in, in your family tree, what family isn't going to find an absent father or an unloved wife or someone carrying great shame or a lack of dignity amongst the members of the family or children who are being brought up in the middle of a mess? You know, I just went, th- I, when I was preparing for this, I started thinking about the stories that my grandmother and my great-grandmother and my aunts and my uncles and thought about the lives of my cousins and the broader family that I have. And you know what? I found all sorts of this stuff in the mix. This family is very typical in many ways. Except for one thing. That God had promised Abraham and then Jacob specifically that their family would someday be so numerous that you couldn't count them. And that they would be used by God to be a blessing to the entire world. And so what do we see right here? Why do we have this story? Because now Jacob has 12 sons. That's a big family. They can make lots of children. And while this large family may have come about through circumstances were less than what God would have wanted, just the fact that they existed proves that God was present and faithful to his promise to Abraham, and we can also see that he was present and faithful to Rachel and Leah. And we can tell that by the way they went about naming their boys, we hear it in the things they say they turn to god in their sorrows and they also turn to god in their joys and part of the beauty of this story is that even though leah and rachel's son's names came straight out of circumstances of their birth back then their names have taken on a new meaning When we hear names like Levi and Simeon and Judah now, we don't think about those things anymore. What we think about and will think about forever is that their names are now associated with a much greater truth. And that truth is that God can fully be trusted. And if you turn to him in your sadness and shame, he will listen and he will keep his promise and he will never leave you or forsake you. And you know, it's interesting that today's passage has bookends. The first bookend is that God sees Leah in her loneliness, and He gives her many children. And at the end of the story, God remembers Rachel's barrenness, and He gives her a son, Joseph. And the reason we're still talking about Leah and Rachel is that their stories tell us that there is hope. Hope that God is present. Hope that God cares about the things that give us our anxieties and the things that make us worry and the things that cause shame in our lives. And in the end, we can trust him with our lives, especially when our lives resemble the lives of some of our spiritual ancestors. When we feel alone in the world and when we feel shame in the world and when we know that we aren't loved by anyone, we have a God who will be As Simeon's name tells us he will always be the one who hears in all honesty I am really thankful that I know that these two women are in our family tree and I am sure someday now this may sound really weird but I'm sure that someday at some future family reunion These mothers will gather, and they'll gather their sons sons around them, and then they'll tell us the stories about this time in their life, and we'll hear something like this said. They'll say, someone, one of the mothers will say, God saw our suffering. Isn't that right, Reuben? And another will say, God listened to us, didn't he, Simeon? And one will say, and Joseph, God took away our humiliation, didn't he? And one of the mothers will say, Judah, will we always praise God? And then all of us as the family of God will gather together and we'll say with Judah, yes, we will always praise him because his love has endured forever. Let's pray. Father... I'm thankful that you are a God who hears us. I'm thankful that you see our suffering. I'm thankful that you have taken away our shame through your son, Jesus. And I'm thankful that you are a God who is worthy of our praise. My prayer, Lord, is that you will be present, that you will fill our hearts with the knowledge of your deep love for us and that you will make, a pe- make us a people who share the reality of the eternal nature of your love for mankind. I pray that we will be that community I pray in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us/pub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.